0: The following article from our Knowing and Doing Quarterly Journal is brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Institute. Our prayer is that this talk will help to deepen your faith and draw you closer to God. The good serves the better, and both the best. C.S. Lewis on Imagination and Reason in Christian Apologetics, Part 2, by Michael Ward. As reason casts about looking for things that are not only meaningful but identifiably true, it inevitably finds a great many stories presented for its consideration, some of which are much more true than others, and very few that are completely untrue. This point was important to Lewis because, as a boy, he had been told by his schoolmasters that Christianity was 100% correct and every other religion including the pagan myths of ancient Greece and Rome, was 100% wrong. He found that this statement, rather than bolstering the Christian claim, undermined it, and he abandoned his childhood faith, quote, "...largely under the influence of classical education." End quote. Having discovered through personal experience that the first thing necessary for Christian faith is an appreciation of Christianity's meaningfulness and not, not immediately, not primarily in the order of explanation its truth. Lewis was untroubled by the similarities between, for instance, the pagan Jupiter and the Hebrew Yahweh. The similarities, he thought, ought to be there. It would be a problem if they were absent. And so he takes pleasure in pointing out, in miracles, that, quote, God is supposed to have a son, just as if God were a mythological deity like Jupiter. The resemblance needs to be present, given that God works through human myths as well as through his own true myth, the historical story of Jesus Christ. Since God is the father of lights, even the flickering lights of paganism could be attributed ultimately to him. Christians should feel no obligation to quench the smouldering wick burning in pagan myths, quite the reverse, they should do whatever they could to fan it into flame. End quote. Lewis, with Edmund Spencer, one of his greatest poetic heroes, believed that quote, divine wisdom spoke not only on the Mount of Olives, but also on Parnassus. Of course, the Parnassian wisdom was not as complete as that offered in Christ. It was not sufficient or salvific, but it should be admired and respected as far as it went. By acknowledging the wisdom of Parnassus, Lewis was following the example of St. Paul. In the book of Acts, Paul preaches to the men of Athens, using the pagan gods to communicate his message. He says to the Athenians that God is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said. For we are indeed His offspring. End quote. Acts seventeen, twenty-seven through twenty-eight. Paul gives two quotations here, but who is he quoting? Moses, Isaiah, one of the minor prophets. He's not quoting Hebrew scriptures at all, but rather Greek poetry poetry about the pagan gods, in particular the king of the pagan gods, Zeus. The first quotation comes from Epimenides, a Greek poet and philosopher of the 6th century before Christ. Epimenides wrote a poem in which he refers to Zeus as the god, quote, in whom we live and move and have our being, end quote. And the second quotation comes from Eratus, a poet from about 300 years before Christ, who again refers to Zeus, saying that, quote, we are indeed his offspring, end quote. Paul's example here is extremely interesting. Obviously, he's not recommending that the men of Athens should worship Zeus. He is urging them to worship the true God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice how he goes about making this point. Rather than saying to the Athenians, you've got it completely wrong, he says, you've got it partly right. You're right that we live and move and have our being in God. You're right that we are God's offspring. You're wrong in thinking that that God is Zeus, but you're right in these other respects. In other words, Paul meets the men of Athens where they are, where they already have an inkling of meaning. He's not concerned to obliterate their traditions. He feels no need to denigrate their limited and incomplete religious knowledge. He works with it, corrects it, adds to it, sublimates it. He says, in rough paraphrase, You have something here, but there's a whole lot more, and that more is to be found in Jesus Christ. He says, in rough paraphrase, You have something here, but there's a whole lot more and that more is to be found in Jesus Christ. He takes what they already possess, imaginatively, and baptizes it. And apparently he had some success. When the Greeks heard Paul, quote, Some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from among them, but some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite. And a woman named Demaris, and others with them. End quote. Acts seventeen, thirty two through thirty three. As an apologetic strategy, it only makes sense to meet people where they are. Where else indeed can they be met? Before people know the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are not in a state of complete innocence or ignorance about the divine nature. Everyone, after a certain age, has thoughts and beliefs about what is of ultimate value in the universe, i.e., what is divine. Those thoughts need to be recognized and responded to. Sometimes the response will consist in contradiction, but more often than not, there will be something that can be responded to positively, and that can be coaxed into fuller life and brighter light. This is why Lewis can say, The only possible basis for Christian apologetics is a proper respect for paganism. Paganism must be looked back at, respected, in order for the Christian apologist to see whether or how much it needs opposition. Imagination is necessary. So, Although apologetics is a reasoned defense, its basis is necessarily imaginative, for reason cannot work without imagination. The high value that Lewis accorded to imagination is seen in an essay called Myth Became Fact, where he writes, I suspect that men have sometimes derived more spiritual sustenance from myths they did not believe than from the religion they professed. To be truly Christian, we must both assent to the historical fact and also receive the myth, fact though it has become, with the same imaginative embrace which we accord to all myths. The one is hardly more necessary than the other. Of course, it is not possible, in fact, to separate the one, the imaginative embrace, from the other, the rational assent. But it is occasionally worth doing a thought experiment on oneself to discover which of them one would prefer if, per impossible, one were forced at the point of a gun to choose between them. There is little doubt which Lewis would have inclined toward. He writes, quote, A man who disbelieved the Christian's story as fact, but continually fed on it as myth, would perhaps be more spiritually alive than one who assented and did not think much about it." Quote. Given that an imaginative embrace of Christianity is as necessary a response as rational assent, and given that rational assent cannot be given without imaginative content informing it, the only issue that the apologist has to settle is whether he is going to conduct his reasoned defense in terms which are more imaginative or less imaginative. They are going to be imaginative at some level, whether he likes it or not. The question to be answered is, to what extent will they approximate the lived language of the Christ story, and to what extent will they render that language in more abstract categories? Abstract categories have the value of clarity, but in other respects are less desirable, Lewis thinks. The less imaginative the terms in which an apologist couches his argument, the less they can actually communicate the thing under discussion. In a brilliant, though sadly incomplete, article entitled The Language of Religion, Lewis homed in on this problem. Quote, Apologetics is controversy. You cannot conduct a controversy in those poetical expressions which alone convey the concrete. You must use terms as definable and univocal as possible, and these are always abstract. And this means that the thing we are really talking about can never appear in the discussion at all. We have to try to prove that God is in circumstances where we are denied every means of conveying who god is." End quote. We have already observed how Lewis discovered in the course of his own path to faith that doctrinal language is less adequate to the reality of Christian truth than the lived language of the Christ story itself. As an apologist he further discovered the controversial language the language of debate persuasion demonstration was even less adequate than doctrinal language, because in a controversy, one has to thin down one's language so that one can communicate with one's opponents, who, by definition, do not possess the imaginative embrace of the topic in hand necessary to a full appreciation of what one is saying. The apologist has to work, so to speak, at the university lecture podium or at the bar of the courtroom while all the while talking about something which goes on in reality at neither place, but rather in prayer, communion, confession, the reading of the scriptures, in the holistic life of faith. Apologetic language unavoidably uses the logic of speculative thought instead of the more pertinent logic of personal relations. It has to be univocal, so that it is useful in contexts where Christianity does not, of its own nature, normally reside. The situation is akin to Mozart or Beethoven trying to prove their musicality, not by conducting one of their symphonies in front of an orchestra, but by standing gagged at a math blackboard using only numbers. This is what Lewis means when he talks about, quote, The great disadvantages under which the Christian apologist labors. The life of faith is best communicated in its own terms, namely, life, the lived language of real human beings, in real times, in real places. Actions speak louder than words. If faith has to be turned into apologetic words, it is best to use words that tell a story, as in the Synoptic Gospels or words that both tell a story and are richly resonant and connotative, like the mighty nouns of St. John's Gospel, word, light, life, way, water, glory, vine, bread. Such narrative or symbolic terms are more capacious than the attenuated metaphors characteristic of abstract arguments. They are, therefore, more able to contain the huge wealth of meaning that there is to carry. Aware of the disadvantages of abstraction, Lewis did not limit himself to the reasoned defenses of traditional apologetics. He also tempted more poetic and creative presentations of the faith in his fiction. His most notable attempt was, of course, The Seven Chronicles of Narnia, and these stories have achieved more, perhaps, than any of his writings by way of communicating the heart of his faith. Rowan Williams has said of the Narnia Septet that, quote, more theological students ought to read it for a sense of what classical Orthodox theology feels like from the inside, a unique achievement at that level, End quote. Chad Walsh, the author of the first study of C.S. Lewis, Apostle to the Skeptics, is of the opinion that, quote, in these books, where his imagination has full scope, Lewis presents the Christian faith in a more eloquent and probing way than ever his more straightforward books of apologetics could. End quote. But this present essay is about apologetics in the sense of reasoned defense, where language cannot be as rich and redolent and therefore true to life, as in a fairy tale. In nonfiction apologetics, language has to be univocal, or at any rate, as univocal as possible. Lewis did not think it was possible to be utterly univocal, even in his reasoned defenses, for he believed that all language, except for the most basic and elementary, was metaphorical. And even the highly desiccated metaphors are not verbal algebra. So, he makes a virtue of necessity. And, if one compares his mere Christianity against other broad introductory apologetics works such as John Stott's Basic Christianity, N.T. Wright's Simply Christian, or Timothy Keller's The Reason for God, one notices how much Lewis's book stands out for the wealth of imagery it employs he constantly resorts to analogy, simile, and metaphor in a way and to an extent which none of these three successor books does. His flotilla metaphor has always struck me as especially helpful. Likewise, the image of the statues in the sculptor's shop. Other images, such as the white smiles toothpaste that remains unused by, quote, a healthy young Negro, unquote, are now well past their use-by date. The famous poached egg simile is also perhaps too colorful for its own good. But Lewis's working principle is sound, whatever the particular faults one may identify in his practice. Apologetic language benefits from being vivid, sensory, and chosen with poetic and not just abstractly rational intent. Lewis aims then to lead his readers along the road he himself trod. Apprehension of meaningfulness was, as we have seen, the first step in his conversion, and so it became, in due course, the customary first step in his apologetic method. If one looks at the rhetorical strategies in forming Lewis's apologetics, one almost always finds that he begins, in the very first paragraph, by immersing the reader in a meaningful situation, whether it be quarreling, as in mere Christianity, despairing, as in the problem of pain, or doubting, as in miracles. When in The Four Loves he introduces the first of the loves, storge, he aims first of all to establish the meaning of the word. The image we must start with is that of a mother nursing a baby, a bitch or a cat with a basket full of puppies or kittens, all in a squeaking, nuzzling heap together, Purrings, lickings, baby talk, milk, warmth, the smell of young life. The method is poetic rather than polemic. There is no question at the outset of whether these various images or situations are good or bad, true or false, beautiful or ugly. They just are. Rational judgments about their value can wait. We know that they mean something and they resonate with our experience or our observations of the world. Having thus engaged our imaginations, Lewis then proceeds to his next step. But as he proceeds, he does not leave imagination behind and exit into some purely rational realm. His strategy is imaginative all the way along. It has to be, given his understanding of how reason works. There is no question of discarding imagination and emerging into a neutral, reliable, scientific, disinterested region which must perforce command the assent of all objective observers. Lewis is not willing to reduce himself or his readers to mere thinkers in a sort of ultra-Cartesian move which plagues so many inferior apologetics and so many earnest undergraduate late-night discussions. It is no good arguing for God or Christ or for the Atonement or even for truth until the apologist has shown, at least at some basic level, that these terms have real meaning. Otherwise, they will just be counters in an intellectual game, leaving most readers cold. Likewise, apologetic arguments for the authority of the Church or the Bible or experience or reason itself, must all be imaginatively realized before they can begin to make traction on the reader's reason, let alone on the reader's will. Before we act or think, we understand meaning, in Lewis's view. And so, the provision of meaningful images becomes the hallmark of his apologetic method. But although Lewis accords imagination a high place, It is not the only or the highest place. There is also reason. And reason is important, indeed essential, if imagination is to serve its proper purpose. Thank you for listening. The C.S. Lewis Institute endeavors to develop disciples who will articulate, defend, and live their faith in Christ in personal and public life. This takes the form of discipleship programs area-wide conferences and seminars, pastor fellowships, and resources in print and on the web. For more information about the C.S. Lewis Institute or to support this ministry, please visit our website at www.cslewisinstitute.org.